John 6, verse 51 through 58 say this. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is in my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh or the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, we're asking now that you help us understand your word better, understand the presence of your son at the supper better. Give us, um, Lord, give us mental energy to understand the depths and the mysteries of the faith. The Lord's Supper is a deep mystery, an ocean um, of things that, yes, can be discovered, but at the same time cannot be comprehended. So, Father, help the preacher and help those who are hearing. Let those who have ears to hear be blessed this this afternoon, Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Last time we were together, we looked at the very the three senses of our tenses of the Lord's Supper. And now we want to look at one of the most controversial aspects of the Lord's Supper. Probably the controversial aspect is going to be the presence of Christ at the table. I read to you John chapter 6, verses 51 through 50, 58. Very mysterious text, is it not? Uh, you have Jesus Christ saying, if you eat me, you will live. So there's something about eating Jesus Christ, which allows someone to have life more fully. And if you read on in the text, you see that many of the disciples were disturbed by what Jesus said here. What does he mean, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I will have life? It's very disturbing, is it not? I mean, you can see that cannibalism, even even uh, in the days of Scripture, was not uh, allowed. It was something forbidden. It was something that people knew. People don't eat people. Let alone, people don't eat people and receive more life. Like, like an 80-year-old man doesn't eat a 20-year-old man and receives new life. Well, Christ is saying here, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you will live forever. Quite mysterious, are they not? This text has been a text um, that has been of much controversy, specifically related to the Lord's Supper. There is much uh, there is much debate concerning the Lord's Supper. Pastor Antonio said uh, one of the debates that we will cover eventually, and that is should we have wine or should we have grape juice at the Lord's table? Which one is permitted? Should we have unleavened bread? Should we have leavened bread? Or as um, one rapper said on Twitter, 
Uh, I'll quote it when we get to um, when we talk about wine and, and bread. He said, "I'm at home. I'm going to take the Lord's Supper." And he think he said, "With a hot dog and a sprite." So the elements themselves have been of much controversy. Um, but when we talk about the controversy of all controversies concerning the Lord's Supper, it is simply this: How is Jesus Christ present? at the Lord's Supper. How is he present at the Lord's Supper? But also, how do we eat upon him? How do we eat upon the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ? Now, there are many views concerning the Lord's Supper. Many views. The view that you hold, or rather I hold, is not the view that a Roman Catholic church would hold to. The view that I hold to is not a view that a Lutheran church will hold to, or an Eastern Orthodox church will hold to. In every sect of Christianity, they're holding to a different, different way of viewing the mode and presence of Christ at the table. That's the big debate. How is he there? In what manner? The first view you have is called consubstantiation. Um, people want to attribute that to Luther. This actually is a view that happened or came about about 300 years before Luther. But consubstantiation says um, that the substance of bread and wine and the body of Christ, they coexist together. So what you have at the table is Christ there and you have real blood there and real body there. They're both there. That's what we're going to say. You have also the Zwingli view um, which says that the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, are merely just bare symbols. It's, so, it's sort of like looking at your wedding picture. That's all it is. You have then what's called the annihilation theory, right? This is another way of looking at the Lord's Supper within Roman Catholicism. And what what they simply means is that the bread and the wine cease to be bread and the wine and becomes the body and blood of the Lord. That's really an annihilation. The bread and the wine are annihilated, and now they become the body and blood of the Lord. You have um, you have now also transubstantiation. Um, Roman Catholics, or rather <laughs> former Roman Catholics, you should know about trans. Um, former Roman Catholics, was transubstantiation ever des- described to you? No? Okay. It's usually not. Uh, we'll, we'll consider that right now. And then the Reformed view, which is the Reformed or spiritual presence of Christ at the table. That is to say, and this is putting my cards on the table, that is to say, what happens at the table? You come to the table by faith. The Holy Spirit lifts you up to be with Christ so that you feast upon him spiritually. So if you ever wondered what happens at the table, it is the Holy Spirit uniting your soul with the soul of Christ. And the soul of Christ gives to you all the what he's basically won for you. He communicates grace to you. That's what happens. That's very mysterious, I know. But let's just consider the Roman Catholic view for a moment. Transubstantiation, because transubstantiation is a view that um, it doesn't make much sense, but then at the same time it does make much sense. I just don't believe that is true. What do Roman Catholics believe concerning the Eucharist? The Eucharist is going to be another word for, for Lord's Supper. We won't go uh, too in-depth for this, um, but because it's quite layered. But from the outset, 
it's important to know that transubstantiation is just one model of the Eucharist in the midst of other models that are, that's trying to describe or make sense of how is Christ present at the table? How is he really there? <clears throat> so transubstantiation, what is it? Transubstantiation is a doctrine that says after the words of consecration, which is the words of institution, the bread and the wine without losing its accidents, become the body and blood of the Lord. That's transubstantiation, a Roman Catholic view. The host or the priest holds up the, the elements, says the words of institution, and at, and at that moment, the very moment of the words of institution, the bread and the wine become the body and blood of the Lord. That's what happens. Now, already we're introduced to words that we don't, used nowadays, right? You just heard me say substance, and you heard me say accidents. Substance and accidents. Now, um, to understand transubstantiation, we have to understand what's called metaphysics. Simply put, metaphysics is the study of being as being. So, what a thing is. Okay? Um, when we talk about metaphysics, we're, we're trying to describe the most fundamental aspects of what goes into a being as a being. Everything that goes into, let's just say, you being you, or a chair being a chair, or a pole being a pole, or a book being a book. That's what we're, that's what we're trying to, to consider when we study metaphysics. Now, there are two things, saints, let's just say with regard to yourself, that constitute you as a person, okay? You have a substance, and you have accidents. So you might say to yourself, I'm a substance, and within my substance, I have accidents, Simply put. Now, if you were to ask someone, what sort of thing is this? You're asking about their substance. So if I was to ask you, what is that? You're not going to say green. And you're not going to say metal. You're going to say it's a chair. So you're making a substance claim, right? Now, if I was to tell you, can you describe to me what that is? Then you'll give to me its accidents. You'll say it's green. Um, the metal looks kind of black or, or what have you, right? With regard to yourself, you're a substance, you're a human person. If I say, now describe to me your accidents, you're going to say, I have gray hair, I have blue eyes, I have brown eyes. Now, here's the difference. If you were to lose your hair color, let's say, like for myself, I have black hair, in about 10 years, I'm going to have gray hair. Does me having gray hair change my humanity? No, I'm still human. We all know that, right? If, if you change your eye color, nothing about you being human is going to change. Your substance doesn't change, but your accidents, your accidents do, right? So with substance, we're, we're considering the deepest reality of a thing. And with accidents, we're considering the taste of a thing, the length of a thing, um, the color of a thing, okay? <clears throat> So each of us, we're composed of being a substance, we're a substance, and we have um, those accidents. Now, how does this relate to the Roman Catholic view of the Eucharist? Okay, When they say, after the words of consecration, the substance of the bread, that is, what it is, it is bread, without losing its accidents, without losing it being, without losing without losing its taste of bread and its taste of wine, turns into the body and blood of the Lord. That's what it is. 
So the deepest reality, if, if you were to ask, if you were to ask a priest, you're holding up the wine, you're holding up the bread, you say, priest, what is that? They're going to say, this is the body of the Lord. While it still tastes like bread and, and tastes like wine. That's essentially it. That's what happens. You might say, how in the world does that happen? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. They're, you're going to say, that doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, the virgin birth doesn't make sense, but you believe it. God being raised from the dead doesn't make sense, right? But you believe it. That That is essentially, and, and among other things, so there, I know there's a lot of questions that you may have, and we can talk about them after after service. Um, one would be, though, if the bread and the wine are truly the body and blood of the Lord, then why in the world does it still taste like bread and smell like wine? Shouldn't it smell like blood and taste like body? Right? I mean, that's a, that's a fair question, right? Or how can Christ be in the bread and wine when we know he's in heaven? So does that mean then that Christ takes a bit of himself and he puts it on the altar of, you know, 10 million Catholic churches around the world every Sunday at Mass? Is that what happens as well? Right? <clears throat> These are questions, and mind you, saints, Every single one of these questions are answered. There are answers. I can try, I can answer them for you. However, what I want to say is what validates truth is not whether one person can answer your question, but what validates truth is whether that, whether the answer to your question is true or not. That's how we validate truth. Okay? Why is transubstantiation wrong? Why don't we hold to a Roman Catholic view of the Eucharist or Lord's Supper? Why is it unreasonable to say that in the in the bread and the wine, it is truly Jesus Christ while still tasting like bread and, and, and smelling like wine? Why is that wrong? Well, my biggest argument against Rome's view of the Eucharist is not the metaphysics behind it. For Rome themselves know that their metaphysics of the Eucharist are not within the realm of metaphysics proper. They know that. That is to say... A substance always brings with it its proper accidents. If it looks like bread, tastes like bread, smells like bread, it is bread. If it looks like wine, tastes like wine, smells like wine, it is wine. Right? Um, let me just give you one reformed scholastic. He says, the dogma of transubstantiation conflicts with the principles that are supreme and true forever. That accidents are not without the subjects to which they determine Therefore, since the color, odor, and taste of the bread and wine are accidents determined to bread and wine, they surely cannot be without the substance of bread and wine. Right? I mean, if, if, these, if, if the accidental features to us give off the appearance of bread and wine, they're bread and wine. Or if it gives off the appearance of wine, it is wine. And then he says, it conflicts with the testimony of the four senses, vision, touch, smell, and taste. It's sort of like if I was to hold you blindfold in a Roman Catholic church and I was going to give you the, the Eucharist, right? And you, you take of the wafer and you take of the, of the wine and you say to yourself, man, that, 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 that was good wine and that wafer, I mean, it was okay, but yeah, it did, it did the job. And someone says, no, no, that, that was actually the body and blood of the Lord. You're going to say, wait a minute, that conflicts with our senses and just common sense. That's not my biggest argument against Rome. At all. Um, my biggest argument against Rome's view of the Eucharist is not the real presence of Christ. 
the Reformed hold to, and we hold to, that Christ is really present in the sacrament. He's really there. My biggest argument against Rome's view of the Eucharist is not the miracle of God changing the substance from bread and uh, uh, to the body of Christ. God can certainly change bread into wine, or bread and, and wine into the body and blood of the Lord, if he so chose. I have no problem in, in saying, amen, a miracle can happen upon the altar, upon the table. He definitely can do that. My biggest argument against Rome is simply scripture. That's the biggest argument against Rome and why we reject transubstantiation. Because I just don't think they get the text right. Simply put. How does Rome then come to this understanding of, 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 um, of the Eucharist? Luke 22, 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he gave it and broke it to them saying, this is my body. That is how they come to an understanding of the Eucharist. So Rome takes what's called a literal approach to scripture. Specifically to this, to this, um, to this statement here. Jesus Christ, I mean, and also too, um, when you, when you consider the text itself, just without any doing any investigation, it does seem plausible, right? Jesus Christ, after breaking it, holds up bread and says, this is my body. So shouldn't we take it literally as the body and blood of the Lord? I mean, Christ says it. Um, well, I think Rome misuses not only philosophical categories, but also they misinterpret the text. They misinterpret the text. What is the Reformed view of the Eucharist or Lord's Supper? What is the Reformed view? Well, we'll consider the Reformed view in just two ways. First, we'll examine the biblical data for the Lord's Supper, and then we'll see how the Reformed considered the Lord's Supper in light of the biblical witness and in light of the errors of Rome. How is Christ truly present? Luke twenty-two nineteen. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he gave it and broke it to them, saying, This is my body. We read this text already, but let me just read it one more time. John 6, 53, 58. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. We'll stop there. How do we interpret these texts? How are, to we, are we to interpret this text? For example, Luke twenty-two nineteen. Jesus breaks bread, holds it, gives it to them and says, this is my body. This is my body. Well, the Reformed did not interpret this verse literally. The Reformed did not interpret this verse literally. Rather, they interpreted the, wor- the Lord's words, this is my body, as figuratively. Figuratively. That is how they interpreted the text. So... Christ says, this is my body. It's not the literal body, but it's a figure of speech. A figure of speech. That is to say, when the Christ holds in his hand bread and says, this is my body, he's saying that this bread and this wine points to or signifies a deeper reality, which is my body and blood. Or we can say the bread and the wine are signs and symbols of the body and blood of Christ. 
It's important to grasp this point, saints, because when we think of the sa- of a sacrament itself, a sacrament is always a sign. A sign that points to a greater and deeper spiritual reality. So the, the bread and the wine, they're pointing to something. It's a sign that points to something. Right? As Augustine says, a sacrament is a visible form of invisible grace or a sign of a sacred thing. So since the Lord's Supper is a sign, or rather is a sacrament, and we know sacraments are signs, then it makes no sense to interpret the words of Christ, this is my body, as literal. Because that would mean that what the sign is signifying is actually become the sign. That's not how we are to think of the Lord's Supper. Again, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. A sacrament is a sign that points to something greater than itself. And this way uh, of the Bible speaking of, um, uh, or using rather, figures of speech is quite common. Consider this argument from Peter Martyr Vermigli. He says, if we bring in many propositions like that, which are considered as figurative and, so to speak, uh, signative, you cannot help but prove that this is the same kind. So what Vermigli is going to say is, if we are to interpret Christ's words, this is my body, in the same way we interpret other texts, it's not going to work. If you take a literal approach to Christ saying, this is my body, to other texts, you're going to find yourself in some deep water. He says, it is written in Colossians, but Christ, what the rock was Christ. Is Christ literally a rock? No. But if you take a literal approach to the Bible, if a literal approach to the Bible is your first method of interpreting the Bible, then you're going to have a problem when you read things like Christ was the rock. Because you're going to think that he's actually a rock. But Christ said to his disciples, apostles, apostles, have I not chosen you the twelve, and one of you is the devil? Was Judas actually the devil? No, he wasn't. Concerning John, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah. Again, when they had breathed upon him, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Or Christ said, I am the vine and I am the door. Is Christ literally a door or made up of a door? When you see Christ, do you say, oh, that's a door? No. Paul said of Christ, he is our peace and of ourselves. You are the body of Christ. Again, we can multiply examples, right? When we read the words of Christ, when he says, this is my body, they aren't to be taken literally, but as a figure of speech. As a figure of speech. Theodore Cyrus says, you are caught in the wet and the net you have woven yourself. For even after the consecration, the mystic symbols are not deprived of their nature. They remain in their former substance, figure, and form. They are visible and tangible as they were before. What Theodore is saying and what he's advocating is, even at the words of consecration, when you read the words of institution, the bread remains as bread and the wine remains as wine. Why? Because it tastes like bread and it smells like wine. <clears throat> However, they are symbols or signs that point to the body and blood of the Lord. They represent the body and blood of the Lord. Now, in light of this, can we still call the bread and the wine the body and blood of the Lord? Can we still call it that then? Since it is not literally the body and blood of the Lord, can we still refer to it as the body and blood of the Lord? John Calvin says yes. 
Now, if it is to be asked whether the bread is the body of Christ and the wine is blood, we answer that the bread and the wine are visible signs which represent to us the body and blood. But that this name and title of body and blood is given to them because they are, as it were, instruments by which the Lord distributes them to us. This form and manner of speaking is very appropriate. It is very appropriate then, what Calvin is saying, to refer to the body and blood are the the bread and wine as the body and blood of the Lord. Why? Because they they, they sign to us the body and blood of Christ. We can refer to the elements as the body and blood because they are linked sacramentally. There is a union between the bread and the wine and the body and blood of the Lord. They signify the body and blood of the Lord without actually being the body and blood of the Lord. As one theologian said, the bread is genuinely exhibiting the body of Christ without being univocal with the body. Univocal is without having a one-to-one connection to the body of Christ. This is important to note, saints, uh, because although the bread and wine are signs that point to Christ, they're not bare symbols. Like your wedding picture, it's just a bare symbol. It's just a picture. It, it, it doesn't have any sort of link to the past, per se. But what we're saying with the bread and the wine is it does have a specific and spiritual link to the body and blood of Christ. So what we can say is it's not, it's not empty. It's not just a bare symbol. As Calvin says, speaking of the bread and wine, it is not a bare figure, but joined to its reality and substance. It is therefore with good reason that the bread is called body, since not only does it re- uh, represent it to us, but also it presents it to us. Now, this is beautiful here. The Spirit uses the bread and wine, and hear this, to present to us Jesus Christ. So today, saints, when you're holding the bread, when you're holding the cup, it is the Spirit giving to you the body and blood of Christ. Why? So that we can share, we can become one with his body and blood. <clears throat> Mysterious. Which leads now us to consider the manner um, in which Christ is present at this Lord's Supper. How do we feast upon Christ's body and blood? For we don't deny a real feeding upon Christ. We don't say it's just a, you know, it's just a picture there and, and it, it points to us what Christ did for us. And we don't deny that Christ is present to us at the Lord's table. We, want to, we don't want to say that he's not truly there. But also, we don't want to say that we're not actually feeding upon Christ. So how is Christ present and how do we feed upon him? Here's the answer. This is what happens at the Lord's table. By faith, when you come to the Lord's table by faith, saints, when the believer eats the bread and drinks the wine, the Holy Spirit carries your soul to heaven. And it is there where we spiritually partake of Christ's body and blood. Yes, very mysterious. By faith, when the believer eats the bread and drinks the wine, the Holy Spirit carries our souls to be with Christ. Because Christ can't come down. He is there. Where it is there, we spiritually partake of his body and blood. Peter Martyr Vermigli. Mind you, Peter Martyr Vermigli is probably the best, if not one of the best, Reformed writers on the Lord's Supper. I mean, he wrote a letter to Calvin, and Calvin says, you got it. You, you ace the test on Lord's Supper. He says this, by faith, this is beautiful here, by faith and the work of the Holy Spirit, our souls to which this spiritual and heavenly food applies 
are carried up to heaven and enjoy the present body and blood of Christ. I mean, isn't that beautiful? To for meekly, at the Lord's Supper, you come to the Lord's table by faith. Faith is the essential part. Because it is by faith that Jesus Christ is made present to us. This is the difference between us and Rome. Rome thinks that Christ is present by the words of institution. It's sort of like a magic, hocus pocus, right? You say this, abracadabra, he's there. What the Reformed want to say is not by the mode of consecration, but it is merely by the form of faith. By faith alone, Christ makes himself present, not by the priest reciting the words of institution. That's one difference between us and Rome. Faith then elevates our souls to heaven, or it is there Christ nourishes our souls. And you might say, well, how come our whole body doesn't, <laughs> how come our whole body doesn't go up? Well, what, what, is, what is it about our souls, right? Well, saints, remember that your soul is spiritual. Your soul is something that goes beyond the body. It's not supposed to be beyond the body or go beyond the body, but your soul will go someplace when you die and your body will stay here on earth. <clears throat> or we can say that at the Lord's Supper, and we'll, we'll expand on that in a little bit. At the Lord's Supper, Jesus is not brought down to us, but rather we're lifted up to him so that we can feast upon him. We're going to we're going to open this up a little bit more next next Sunday. But <clears throat> now, what do I mean when I say we feast upon Christ? You've heard this before by me. I say, Lord, may we now feast upon your body, because I just said that we don't we don't. We don't feast upon him, right? We don't want to say that he's actually there and we're tasting skin and body and we're tasting blood. So how do we feast? <clears throat> the eating of Christ's body and blood is not a material or corporeal eating, but it's a spiritual eating. It's a spiritual eating. As Herman Bobbing says, though the Lord's Supper is a real meal, as such, it has a spiritual significance and purpose of its own. And hear this, Christ did not institute it so that it would nourish us physically, but rather spiritually. Since Christ is not present to us in a material form, since, since Christ has not come down to the host, right, or to the Lord's Supper, and, 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 and the Lord's Supper actually becomes the literal body and blood of the Lord, then we must not receive Christ's body and blood with the organ of the mouth, but with the organ of faith. We don't receive Christ by the organ of the mouth. We receive him by the organ of faith. It is the soul that receives Christ. A spiritual eating. Peter Martyr Vermeekly says, As believers both eat and drink the bread and wine with bodily mouth, so their souls are stirred up by the favor of the Holy Spirit, the words of God and outward symbols, and are carried to heaven, reaching all the way to Christ with the mouth of faith. What he's saying is the body and blood, I mean the bread and the wine, as well as us, are lifted up to heaven. Just as the mouth of the body eats the bread and wine, so the mouth of the soul eats of spiritual food, which is the true body and true blood of Christ. Christ says it here. Jesus Christ says, right, um, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. This goes beyond the way we think of eating, does it not? Because we're materialists in many ways. Right? We, we know of eating by it being there, being cooked, um, tasting a certain way. Right? We can't conceptualize spiritual eating. 
But we can. We can. <clears throat> this spiritual eating, saints, is not less real. You might think, well, how is it even real? Well, think of it this way. God is a spirit. Does it make him less real? It actually makes him more real. So what it means is spiritual eating is more real than just material eating. And why? It's because spiritual eating does more for you than physical eating can do for you. Because spiritual eating touches the very essence of you, which is your soul. Your soul then, just, just stay with me here, it's a good argument. Your soul is what animates your body. You're able to see because of your soul. You're able to operate because of your soul. What do you need for your soul to be? You need your soul and you need that which animates and operates in your body. You need to operate like Christ. That's what you need most. In fact, saints, if Christ was interested in nourishing us physically, then he would have picked steak and potatoes. He would have picked Coca-Cola and... In and out burger. I don't know. Something, you know, he would have picked something that would, if he was interested in nourishing us physically, right? There is a significance to bread and wine. We'll, we'll talk about that. But he would pick something other than just simply bread and wine if he was interested in nourishing us physically, but rather Christ is interested in nourishing us spiritually. In fact, Jesus says this in John 6 27. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. It is spiritual food that sustains you. It is spiritual food that will not allow you to go to hell. It is spiritual food that will allow you to be like Christ. You eat steak and potatoes and rice, you may, be, you may, you may turn out to look like a bodybuilder. But, you not, but that type of diet will not allow you to look like Christ. You need spiritual food to be more like Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say that we don't need our bellies to be full, but we need our souls to be infused with grace so that we can be like Christ. That's what Jesus Christ does at the supper. He says, I'm giving to you that which you need most. I'm giving to you spiritual food. It touches your soul. I give to you grace so that on Monday, you can act like you are a worthy participant of the body and blood of the Lord. So on Tuesday, when you're with your friends, you can act like you're spiritually nourished. And the virtues that I have given to you will be exhibited in front of all. You can act like a person of faith when all around you is going haywire. That's, that, that's one of the, some of the implications, right? The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10.16, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the body of Christ, or the blood of Christ? is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ. Beautiful text. But what St. Paul is telling us is the bread and the wine, they're used as instruments. The Spirit uses the bread and the wine to put your soul, saint, your soul in direct contact with Jesus Christ. The bread and the wine are used by the Spirit to put you in direct contact with the person of Christ. And to share in Christ's body and blood. And to share in Christ's body and blood, saints, simply means to participate in all that Christ has won for us. It's for Christ to give to us from his humanity graces so that our humanity can be raised up and look like him. That's what happens. 
So in summary, when we come to the Lord's Supper by faith, the Holy Spirit uses the bread and wine to unite us to the risen and ascended Christ. And as our souls are lifted up to Christ, we are nourished as we spiritually feed upon Christ's body and blood. So believer today, <clears throat> I don't have a lot of application. I'm just going to give you one real short one because I, I want you just to contemplate on these things. So believer, if you are a worthy receiver of the body and blood of Christ today, when you eat of the bread and when you drink of the cup, the spirit is feeding your soul Jesus Christ. That is what is happening. This is why it's a sacred meal. This is why Paul says you are to examine yourselves. This is something that we do not do in any other event or part of our lives. It is Jesus Christ when we are, when he feeds us. It is Christ then who gives to us the graces that he has won in order for one thing, so that we may be like him. So saints this morning, or this evening, or this afternoon rather, Let's now pray.